James 5, 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. As also just for your your leadership as, uh, as we begin to think and pray and dream about what God might be doing, not just here in Indianapolis, but how he wants to, to use us to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So thank you guys for being here today. I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. We're continuing our series today through spiritual formation. And what we're asking really over this year, year and a half is what does it look like for us as a people to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world? And Pastor Brandon started us with this last week. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking specifically at the practice of prayer. Because if you read the Gospels, if you read the biographies of Jesus, you find that prayer was absolutely central to Jesus' life. In many ways, his life was defined by prayer. You see Jesus out there, he's, he's casting out demons, and he's healing the sick, and he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and yet Luke says that he would often break away from all of that, and he would get alone with his father and spend time in prayer, seeking to hear from his father, seeking to speak to his father, seeking to be in his father's presence. And what you find as you read the biographies of Jesus is that prayer was the way that he continually aligned his heart and his life and his mission with what his father was doing in the world. See, that's what prayer is. Here's what prayer is. Prayer is connecting to God and what he is doing in the world. It's connecting to God and what God is doing in the world. So as the people of God, we connect to God relationally, right? We're his, we're his children. He's our father. We want to be in his presence. We want to know him. We want to be changed by him. So we connect with him relationally, but we also connect with him missionally. We connect with what he's doing in the world. There's this absolutely mind-blowing statement in the Gospel of John. So Gospel of John, chapter 14, last night before Jesus goes to the cross, he's got all of his disciples together, and he calls them together, and he says, I'm going to be leaving you. And they start freaking out, and they start becoming so terrified because Jesus has said, I'm going to bring my kingdom to earth. And they have left everything because they've been trusting in this guy who's going to bring his kingdom to earth. And now he says that he's leaving, and they say, we don't know what's going to happen now. And Jesus says this, John 14, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He says, the one who believes in me will do greater works than me. 
And then he says, the way that it happens is by asking in my name. Now, in the, in the ancient world, your name was your character. Your name was your reputation. And so praying in the name of Jesus doesn't just mean, I, you know, I tag this little incantation on the end, and then God has to do what I ask him to do. What he's saying is pray according to my name. Pray according to my character. Pray according to my reputation. Pray according to my glory. Pray for what I am doing in the world. Come to the Father, he says, through me, and pray for my name to be made great, and your prayers will be answered. Jesus says, I am sending you to carry out my mission. I am sending you out as agents who carry this kingdom of heaven that is invading the kingdoms of the world. Because while I've been here on earth, I've been kind of walking around Palestine, and I've been teaching, and I've been healing, and I've been proclaiming the good news, and I've been casting out demons, and I've been announcing all these things. But he says, you will do greater things than I did. And that should blow your mind. Because his kingdom here is about to go viral. What he says is that my kingdom now isn't going to be, be contained to one geographical location, but I'm going to send you out as agents who are going to carry my kingdom to the ends of the earth. I'm about to go to the cross. I'm about to conquer sin and death. I'm about to rise again. I am going to assert my power over sin and death and all the powers of darkness, and you are going to be the ones who carry it to the ends of the earth. And how does he do that? How does Jesus release his power over sin and death and guilt and disease and shame and fear and hell itself? How does he release that power into the world? He says here that he does it through our prayers. Like, think about that for a minute. The God who spoke the universe into existence with a word listens to the words that we pray, and he releases his power into the world through that. That's what prayer is. Prayer is how we connect to God and what God is doing in the world. And I can say that, but I don't pray like that. So often, I want good things. I want to know Jesus. I want other people to know Jesus. I want justice and flourishing in the world. I want an end to human trafficking. I want the kingdom of God to come to earth. I want Jesus to return and set all things right and to make all things new, and yet I don't pray. So the question we start asking ourselves is why not? Why don't we pray like that? And I think as I look at our congregation, as I talk to many of you, as I talk to myself, I think there are three primary roadblocks that I see to prayer. The first is distraction. We live in a culture of distraction. Did you know that at any given moment, your brain is being bombarded with somewhere, give or take, uh, 11 million different pieces of data? And we live in a world that is designed to bombard us with more all the time. I'm reading a fascinating book right now. It's by a guy named Tim Wu. Uh, Tim Wu is a professor of technology and law at Columbia University. He's the guy who coined the phrase net neutrality. I'm not 100% sure I even know what that means, but he coined uh, this phrase, net neutrality, and he has this, has this uh, book called The Attention Merchants, the epic scramble to get inside of our heads. And what he does in this book is he, he lays out the history, really over the past 200 years, of marketing and advertising and media in the West. And what he shows is that the most valuable commodity in the world today is your attention. There are governments... And there are industries and there are corporations that are systematically engineering your experience to distract you, to grab your attention so that they can sell you something. And many of us are not even aware that it's happening. 
Listen to what he says. He says, ultimately, it is not our nation or our culture, but the very nature of our lives that is at stake. For how we spend the brutally limited resource of our attention will determine those lives to a degree that most of us may prefer not to think about. As William James observed, we must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we paid attention to, whether by choice or by default. And many of us just go into it by default. He says, we are at risk without fully realizing it of living lives that are less our own than his. Now, this is not a tirade against marketing or advertising or media. The whole point is not that we need to burn our iPhones and we need to go buy generators and we need to become preppers and live off the grid somewhere. But the point is, be aware. Be aware that there are constantly things seeking to distract you, constantly seeking to grab your attention, and what you pay attention to will determine the shape of your life. And for many of us, that's what keeps us from praying. Because there are all these other things that are grabbing for our attention, and they draw us to something else. And I don't need God if I can buy that product. I don't need God if I can get that experience. I don't need God if I can escape into an endless stream of social media and Netflix. We don't pray because we're distracted. Second reason we don't pray is because for many of us, we have a false sense of self-reliance. A false sense of self-reliance. We're Americans. Many of us in this room are Midwesterners. We, We work hard. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And there is a lot to be admired about that. But listen... There are some things in life that you simply cannot accomplish by the sweat of your brow and the, work of, and the strength of your work ethic. And I realize that goes against everything your mom and your kindergarten teacher told you, but that is reality. And that's especially true when it comes to the kingdom of God. Like just me personally, I can work my fingers and my brain to the bone trying to prepare to preach this message. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't take it and make it land in your hearts, it won't accomplish anything. And we can have all these plans. We can have these plans for for global missions, and we can have plans for for taking the gospel to our neighborhoods, and we can have plans for loving and serving our city and for planting churches. But if God doesn't breathe life into those pursuits, it's powerless. Can I confess to you, do you know how most pastors pray? Do you know how I pray? I get in my my office, and I begin to pray, and I begin to to lay out these requests before the Lord, and then then I begin thinking about all those things, and I begin thinking about all the things that I need to do to make those things happen, and about three minutes into my so-called prayer time, I'm up sending an email and working on a project. And for all intents and purposes, I have cut God off. Man, I think for many of us, that's true in our lives. Like, when you're faced with a difficult, insurmountable task, what's the first thing you do? Is it to freak out? Is it begin planning and, and scheming and, and, and compulsively trying to make something happen? Or do you go to God? Do you go to him in prayer? We don't pray because we're distracted. We don't pray because of a false sense of self-reliance. And for many of us, just frankly in the church, we don't pray because we got some really messed up theology. And we think, yeah, God's in control of all of it. And so whatever God's going to do, God's going to do, and it doesn't really matter. Listen, if you have a theology that tells you that you don't need to pray, then you have a theology that is nothing like the theology of Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh, and yet he prayed like his life depended on it. And so if the Son of God needed to pray like that, then surely I need to pray like that too. The fact is, God is working in the world. 
He is doing something in the world, and he is welcoming us into it. He is calling us to be a part of it. And God uses people like you and me to get that to happen. And one of the primary ways that that happens is that we pour out our hearts to him in prayer and join him in what he's doing. All throughout the Bible, you see uh, examples of what, of what church history, the church historically, rather, has called contending prayer. Contending prayer. In other words, it is prayer with a wartime mentality. It is prayer that recognizes that we are in a fight. It is prayer that recognizes that Jesus has brought the kingdom of light to earth, and it is invading the kingdom of darkness. And one of the primary weapons that he calls us to use is the weapon of prayer. And friends, I honestly cannot think of anything that we at Soma Church need to learn more than that. Because we are a people who are often distracted. And we are a largely successful, upwardly mobile congregation that believes in our ability to get things done. And we need to learn to contend in prayer. So what we're going to do today is we're just going to look at a passage of scripture that, that paints a picture of this. It comes from the end of the book of James. And in this passage, two things we're going to see. Two keys to contending prayer. Two keys to powerful and meaningful prayer in your lives. Two keys to connecting to God and what he's doing in the world. So very simple. Here they are. Be honest about where you are and be confident in who God is. Be honest about where you are and be confident in who God is. Be honest about where you are. James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. He says, be honest wherever you are. Good times, hard times, suffering, happiness. Just be honest with God about it. If times are hard, cry out to him in prayer. If times are good, sing out to him in praise. Some of us find it easier to pray in the hard times. Some of us find it easier to pray in the good times. But we should all be praying all the time. Prayer should be like breathing to us. Breathe in happiness. I breathe out praise. I breathe in suffering. I breathe out prayer. I breathe in anxiety or stress or pain. And I breathe out by crying out to God to be with me. Be honest with God about where you are. Verse 14, he goes further. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The, the picture here is there's someone who's seriously ill. They're like on their deathbed. They're so sick that they can't get out of bed. And the elders actually need to come to them and literally stand over them because they can't get up out of bed and to pray for them and to cry out for healing. He says the church, the, the community, and specifically the elders, should be rallying around people in their struggles, in their trials, specifically in their physical sickness here, and should be crying out and trusting that God can heal. And then it gets really weird. He starts talking about sins being forgiven. Because the fact is that God treats us as human beings. He cares about our bodies and he cares about our souls. And as broken people living in a broken world, we need spiritual healing as well as physical healing. He says, anoint the person with oil. Now, oil is, is really fascinating here. It, uh, in the ancient world, oil was considered as having medicinal properties. And so uh, they would often use it for soothing wounds. Some people thought that it had a, a healing effect. 
And so certainly we, we use medicine. That's actually one of the things that you see in the scriptures is that God calls us to use natural means for caring for people. And many of you in this room are dedicating your lives to partnering with God to bring healing to people. And so there's, there's this symbol of natural means of medicinal healing, but it also goes deeper than that. Because in the scriptures, oil was also symbolic of the presence of God. It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's a tangible reminder here. And, and he, here's what he's saying. He is saying, in the midst of your sickness, in the midst of your illness, in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, in the midst of whatever you are walking through, remember that God is with you. Remember that God is for you. Remember that God has not abandoned you. And then he says your sins will be forgiven because God doesn't just want to heal your body. He wants to heal your soul. Fact is, we are both physical and spiritual. And sometimes our sickness is both physical and spiritual. And sometimes, if we pay attention to our bodies, our bodies will, will be a barometer of what's happening in our soul. Psalm 32, listen to what King David says. He said, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, in other words, what he's saying is when I hid my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as with the heat of summer. Have you ever felt that? Where there's something you're hiding where there is something that is eating away at your soul and you're trying to keep it in and your vitality and your strength is absolutely drained away. And then he says this, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, our bodies keep a score of what's happening in our soul. Now listen, that does not mean Hear me say this, that does not mean that every time you get sick, it's because of unconfessed sin. And this also doesn't mean that you should go around trying to figure out why everybody else gets sick. So I know the flu is running rampant right now. You sh please don't do that. You hear your buddy sneeze and you're like, hey, how's your heart, bro? Like, <laughs> what's, what's going on? What have you been looking at, all right? My whole family has been, they're home today. They've been decimated by the flu this week. Let me tell you what I am not doing. I am not waking my wife up out of her flu-induced coma and asking her what sin she is hiding. So please don't do that. But there are a lot of places in the Bible, right? There are a lot of places in the Bible where Jesus heals people of diseases that have nothing to do with hidden sin in their lives. So James is not saying that all sickness is a result of hidden sin. But he is saying that the body keeps a score. He is saying that Jesus is the great physician. That he is the one who heals the body and the soul. And the church should be a hospital for sinners where we can find healing. He says, confess our sins to one another. Verse, verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, being honest about where you are doesn't just mean being honest about your suffering. It doesn't mean just being honest about your situation. It means being honest about your sin. It means recognizing God doesn't just want to heal my body. He wants to heal my soul. He wants to heal me at the core of where I am. So we confess our sins to one another and we pray for one another. Listen, a healthy community is a community where we are doing that regularly. 
where we are regularly and openly and honestly confessing sin to one another and forgiving one another and pointing one another to the hope that's only found in Jesus. Where if I've wronged someone, I go to them and I confess it to them and I seek their forgiveness. And where if someone's wronged me, they come to me and they can honestly lay that before me and I forgive them. Where if I'm struggling with a particular sin, I can be honest with that, about that with my brothers or sisters and they don't weaponize it against me. And they point me to the love of Jesus and they point me to the forgiveness and the grace that's found in him and they help me as I seek to fight that sin. That's what a community of healing prayer looks like. And so let me ask you where you are. Is that the kind of friend you are? Do your friends know that they can come to you and honestly confess their sins to you? Is that the kind of spouse you are? Does your husband or your wife know that they can honestly come to you and confess their sins to you and you will seek to forgive them? It doesn't mean that it's always easy. It can be difficult. It can be painful. It can be a long process. But are you the kind of friend, the kind of spouse, the kind of parent, the kind of person who people can feel confident confessing their sins to you? Do they know that if they're honest with you, you will seek to extend forgiveness and healing? And are you the kind of people who's w- person who's willing to do that? Are you the kind of person who's willing to be honest with other people about your sin? You don't try to justify it. You don't try to excuse it. You don't try to hide it. You don't try to deny it. You don't try to explain it away. You simply say, I'm sorry. I've sinned. I've wronged you. Please forgive me. Every church, uh, I've been a pastor at four different churches now. Uh, every church has certain buzzwords that are part of, its, part of its culture. And of course, around Soma, we're no different. Uh, some of our members actually, and they shall remain nameless, um, have created a board game to celebrate this fact. It's called Soma Lingo Bingo. <laughs> so here's, uh, let's see, I think we got a, a, a picture. This is the original Soma Lingo Bingo board. And so here's all of some of the buzzwords. And so what you do is you kind of listen to during the service and you listen for these buzzwords. So we got MC, we've got reconciliation, community, empower, hospital. I think rhythms is up there somewhere. Uh, intentional, all these different buzzwords that you kind of hear around here. And so the idea is I'm listening to the sermon, I can mark all these things off. Thankfully, no one has yelled bingo in the middle of a, of a sermon yet. But <laughs> I, cut the, I cut the names off the top to protect the guilty, by the way. So we all have these different, different lingos, right? Every church, every culture has a different vocabulary. L- let me say this. If we're going to be a healing community, If we are going to be a community where people can encounter the healing presence and power of Jesus, then that language of confession and repentance and honesty and forgiveness needs to be central to our lives together. Are we the kind of community where we can be honest with God and where we can be honest with each other? So that's the first key. The first key is is to be honest about where you are, but it can't stop there because if you stop there, you're going to end up depressed and helpless. Be honest about where you are. Secondly, be confident in who God is. Be confident in who God is. Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is not, by the way, this is not about having confidence in who you are. This is about having confidence in who God is. 
This is not being confident about your ability to pray. This is being confident in the God who hears our prayers. So James talks here about this guy, Elijah. Elijah, in the Hebrew scriptures, in Jewish thought, he's considered the greatest of all the prophets. And yet James says he was just a man just like us. You read 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah is depressed, and he's tired, and he's scared. He was a man like us. And listen, the sobering reality that hit me this week as I was studying this text is that the only difference between Elijah and me is that Elijah prays and I don't. That Elijah prays and I don't. He prayed fervently. He prayed desperately. He poured out his heart to God because he recognized that God was all he had. And if God didn't show up, he was helpless. It's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. So here's Elijah. He's this prophet, and he confronts King Ahab. So King Ahab is this king of Israel. He's been leading the people away from God. He's been leading them to worship this false god, Baal. And Elijah comes to him and says, Ahab, turn back to God. And, And Ahab says, no. Of course he says no. And then Elijah says, because you don't turn back to God, it's not going to rain. It doesn't rain for three and a half years. And of course, does Ahab turn back to God? No, he gets mad at Elijah, which happens quite a bit. And so he gets mad at Elijah, and he begins coming after Elijah, and he literally sends soldiers to capture Elijah. And Elijah says, all right, you want to do this? Let's do this. Let's have a showdown. Meet me at Mount Carmel at high noon. I think it was actually nine in the morning, but it sounds better if you say high noon. So (laughs) meet meet me at Mount Carmel at high noon. And you bring all your priests of Baal, and I'm going to bring myself, and we're going to see whose God is God. So, like West Side Story, Ahab rolls up. He's got 450 priests of Baal with him. All right, so he comes in, and Elijah shows up, and it's Elijah and his one sidekick. And they, like, stare each other down, and then they, they kill two bulls, and they put them on the altar. And the priests of Baal go first. And so they just start praying. They start crying out to their God. Baal, would you send fire from heaven? Would you, would you burn up this offering? And they pray louder and they pray longer. And they actually start cutting themselves because they're trying to get Baal's attention. And nothing happens. So Elijah, like I love Elijah. He's like, hey, bro, where's your God? Like maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you need to yell a lot. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Like, and like literally, I'm not making that up. That's what's in the scriptures. And they cry out. And they pray, and they cut themselves for three hours, and they exhaust themselves crying out to their God, and nothing happens. Then Elijah says, all right, it's my turn. He says, bring me three buckets of water. He takes the water, and he drenches the sacrifice, and he digs like a moat around the altar, and he fills it with water. And he cries out to the Lord. And the one true God sends fire from heaven and burns up the sacrifice and dries up the water supply. And Elijah looks at Ahab and he says, do you see who the real God is, Ahab? Ahab, I know it hasn't rained in three and a half years, but I'm about to pray for rain, so you better get moving, Ahab, because there's a storm coming. And then he cries out again, and the same God who shut up the heavens is the God who opens the heavens and sends the rain. And it's this literal mountaintop experience. 1 Kings 18. Then you get to 1 Kings 19, and Elijah is on the run for his life. And he is depressed, and he is scared, and he cries out, God, would you just kill me? He is a weak, fallen, frightened man. But his God was strong. And his God heard his prayer, and his God sent fire from heaven, and his God sent rain from heaven. He was a weak man trusting in a strong God. 
And so let me ask you today, I know maybe you feel weak. In the midst of your weakness and in the midst of your brokenness and in the midst of your helplessness, what are you crying out to God for? What fire are you calling down from heaven? What rain are you calling down from heaven? What impossible thing are you trusting God to do? If we can't answer that, if I can't answer that, then I've got to ask myself if I believe in the same God that Elijah believed in. I I find that one of the primary sins in my life is the sin of resignation. What I mean by that is I just kind of roll with the punches. And to some extent, you have to do that in life. But here's the thing. If I believe in something, and not just in something for myself, if I believe in something that is for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom and the good of other people, then why wouldn't I cry out for it? Why wouldn't I contend for it? Why wouldn't I go to my knees and fight a holy war of prayer for it? That's what Elijah is doing. He is contending. He is fighting for the glory of God. And here's the thing, Soma Church, we've seen some cool things in the last seven years. And God's been kind to us, but I want to ask us, what are we believing God for now? What are we crying out for now? What are we contending for now? As we seek to serve our city, as we talk about making disciples, as we talk about taking the gospel to our neighborhoods and to the nations, listen, we are stepping into contested space. And the kingdom of darkness will not simply roll over and give up without a fight. And if we want to see God's kingdom come in Indy and in all nations, then we need the power and the presence of God. So I want to ask you, will you go to your knees and will you fight for the good of our city and the good of our neighbors and the good of the nations and the glory of God? This is a weak, fallen man, and we are weak, fallen people like Elijah, but our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in God. That's why it's called the prayer of faith. It's not called the prayer of self-reliance. It's not called the pep talk about how you can do it. It's the prayer of faith. It is the prayer of trust. It is the prayer of confidence, not in ourselves, but in God. Because faith doesn't mean that you never doubt. Faith doesn't mean that you always feel strong. Sometimes all you do is you say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Sometimes your faith feels weak, but you place your weak faith in a strong God and you trust that he can deliver you. You trust his power, you trust his wisdom, you trust his love. And sometimes, sometimes that means that he doesn't give you exactly what you asked for. Sometimes it means that you cry out to him and you trust in him and he doesn't heal your body. He doesn't heal your child and he doesn't heal your marriage. And in those moments, the prayer of faith looks like the prayer of Jesus in the garden. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross. He is terrified. He is literally sweating blood. And he cries out to his father. And he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He says, father, I don't want to do this. I don't want to walk through this. Please find another way. But even if you kill me, Father, I trust you. I trust that your way is better than mine. I rest in your wisdom. I rest in your love for me. God is a good father, and he loves to give good gifts to his children. But sometimes his children come to him asking him for things that they think are good, and he knows that's not what's best for him. I don't give my kids everything they ask for. 
Like, I don't let my three-year-old drive the car, and he gets really mad at me about it. And he gets beat red, and he starts screaming. He starts flopping on the ground like a fish, and he can't understand, why won't I just give him the keys? It's because I love him. It's because I love him, and I know what's best for him, and I want what's best for him. And the truth is that I don't always understand why my heavenly father doesn't give me everything that I ask for. Like real talk, right now, there are things that I am crying out to God for in my life, and I've been crying out for years, and he hasn't given them to me, and I don't know why. But here's what I know. I know that he loves me, and I know that he knows something that I don't know, and I know that he knows what he's doing. Because the truth is that if God gave me everything I asked for, I would be terrified to ask for anything. Because I look at the things that I've wanted in the past in my life, and I see them now, and I thank God that he loves me enough to tell me no. And here's the good news about prayer. The good news about prayer is that you can come to God, and you can be honest with him, and you can cry out to him, and you can tell him, God, this is what I want. Would you do this for me? And if that thing is the thing that's best for you, he'll give it to you. And if it's not what's best for you, he's going to give you something better. And that should give you confidence when you pray because you don't have to get it right and you don't have to nail it. You can trust the Father who loves you, who knows more than you to get it right and to give you what's best. Practically, I think, I think for a lot of us, we really want to pray, but we just don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. And it is really hard to go to prayer and contend for something in prayer when you're not even sure what you should be praying for. So a couple quick tips. These are just things that, that have helped me in that. First thing that's helped me, pray the scriptures. Pray the scriptures. The Bible is full of prayers that Jesus and the apostles prayed for you and me. John 17, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Philippians 1, Colossians 1. If you ever don't know how to pray for yourself, and if you ever don't know how to pray for someone else, pray the scriptures. And then often what happens is that jump starts your mind and you begin getting clarity about what you need in the situation or at least what you want to cry out to God for. So pray the scripture. Second, depend on the spirit. Depend on the spirit. Romans 8.26 is a beautiful promise. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this is the Apostle Paul. This is the guy who wrote half the books in the New Testament. And he says, sometimes I don't know what to pray for. Sometimes we don't know what we should pray for, and yet we can still come confidently to God in prayer. Because we know that even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit of God who lives inside of you, if you are a follower of Jesus, is praying for you. And he always prays for the thing that is best for you. Pray the scriptures, depend on the Spirit. Thirdly, finally, rest in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, when I read that verse, in one sense, that's a comfort to me. God hears my prayer. In another sense, that's really discouraging. Because if I'm honest with myself, and if I'm honest with God, and if I'm honest with you, I am not a righteous person in and of myself. And I can't come to God and say, God, hey, I'm righteous. I got it all figured out. God, I've done everything right. God, you should listen to what I'm saying, and God, you should give me what I want. 
even my best attempts to do the right thing are infected with selfishness and hypocrisy. And I can't come to God and say, God, I deserve this. God, hear me on the basis of my righteousness. But here's the amazing thing. You know that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a perfectly righteous person praying for you right now. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He says, my sin condemns me, my conscience condemns me, but Jesus intercedes for me. He stands in my place and he pleads for me. He stands in my place and he prays for me. He lived the life that I should have lived. He died the death I deserved to die. He rose to the right hand of the Father. And when my sin and my guilt and my shame accuse me, Jesus stands in my defense and he pleads for me and he declares me righteous. That's why I can pray with confidence. Because God the Father loves me as he loves his own son. God the Father accepts me as broken and as sinful as I am in and of myself. He accepts me as much as he accepts his own son. And God the Father is as committed to me as he is to Jesus Christ. And so I can be honest with him. I can be honest with him about my suffering. I can be honest with him about my sin. I can be honest with him about all of it. And I can be confident in who he is. That he's my father who loves me, who wants me to come confidently to him, who wants to give me good things. So be honest about where you are and be confident in who he is. We're actually going to move to the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. And we're going to do something a little different uh, during the Lord's Supper today. This might freak you out uh, a little bit, but it's probably good to be freaked out once in a while. So we just, we just read this passage. We read this passage here about calling for the elders of the church and, and being anointed with oil and receiving prayer. And the fact is, I don't want to just read the Bible and then be like, okay, that's cool. Now let's go do something else. I want to look at it and I want to say, okay, the scriptures tell us to do that. Let's open up an opportunity for people to do that. And so what we're going to do during this time as we're taking the Lord's Supper, we're also going to have some of our elders stationed around the room. And so I'm going to be up front here. I'm going to ask Jonathan and Beth if you guys during the Lord's Supper would come up here and grab one of these oils right here. And Grant's going to be in the back. And so if you, if you need prayer, if you would like someone, we're not going to like pour a bunch of oil on you, but we're gonna, we might like dab it or something like that. If that freaks you out, we don't have to do that either. We can just pray for you. But we would love to pray with you. The, the oil, as I said, it is, a, it is simply symbolic. So there's nothing magical about this oil. We didn't give you know, any money to a televangelist for it. Um, there's, it's not even an essential oil, okay? It's simply, <laughs> it's, all it is. Honestly, it's, it was some olive oil we had left over in the kitchen. And so uh, nothing, nothing at all magical about it. The whole point is that it's symbolic. <laughs> Got to recover from that. Uh, the whole point is that it's symbolic. The whole point is that just this little tiny bit, a little dab, you know, will, um, it's just a reminder. It's a reminder. You have the Holy Spirit with you. You have the presence of God with you. And, and, and whatever you're walking through, he is with you and he has not left you. So if you, got, if, if you want someone to pray for you, we would love to pray with you. That might be for physical healing. That might be for spiritual healing. That might be a relationship that needs healing. That might be some desperate situation in your life. That might be something you've been hiding that you just want to come clean and be honest about. That could be any number of things. 
But as we're, as we're taking the Lord's Supper, if you'd like one of us to pray with you, we would love to do that. As I said, it's just a tangible reminder uh, that God is with us. The, the bread and the cup that we're about to take is also one of those tangible reminders. It's amazing. Jesus doesn't just give us words to hear. He actually gives us tangible reminders that he's with us. The bread and the cup reminds us his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have the living presence of God inside of us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're trusting in him to make you right with God, then come and eat and drink today. Again, we'll have stations at the front. We'll have stations out in the back. Just come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, dip in the cup and take it and return to your seat. Maybe you're hearing like you're not a follower of Jesus and this all just sounds really weird to you. And, and we would invite you just to, just to stay in your seat and be honest with yourself while others come to take this bread in the cup. And just be honest, where are you? Maybe if you're, if you're willing to step out, maybe even try being honest with God and just saying, God, I'm having a hard time believing in you. God, I'm struggling with this. Be honest about where you are. And maybe, finally, maybe you need to be honest with someone in this room. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a former friend. Maybe you need to confess sin. Maybe you need to extend forgiveness to someone. So, I, like, I want this to be a time where you can do what the Spirit of God is leading you to do. If that's to cry out in prayer, if that's to come and be prayed for, if that's to reconcile with someone, uh, whatever God, if that's just to, to, to quietly sit and think about where you are and think about what God is, is calling you to do, just take some time and do that. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We'll have the stations if, if, if you'd like to, to be prayed for. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll c uh, conclude the service.